Hello! Oh god, why'd I do that? This is Quintessence of Dust, episode 12. I'm your host, Jack Newman. How's your day going today? So, yeah. Where was I? Where was I? Where was I? We're going to try to be... Less strict on myself as far as timing goes. It doesn't have to be an hour long. If I don't feel like talking very much more, then I'm not going to. I'm just going to end it. Um, I want to try doing one show a week. And actually try to edit it on some sort of computer. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And, yeah, I did another episode that I didn't release because uh, I went on a tangent. I was in a trough of myself, and um, I didn't want to go down some dark roads. I don't know why I even make those. When I'm halfway through it, I'm like, what the fuck? I'm not going to release this. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Welcome to Quintessence of Dust. Um, what is the deal? Well, I wanted to name this... I want to name this episode Happiness in Slavery. Because of the... Nine Snail song, which will be the header if you happen to listen to this on Anchor, which most of you probably won't, and therefore it's kind of pointless, but I wish I could have actual music in here. And who knows, maybe one day I'll play uh, some guitar before I talk about random shit, but... That way, it can't be uh, can't be subject to copyright law and therefore um, taken down. However, that works. So yeah, there's a lot of things COVID nineteen related that are annoying. Um, and I have to start with kind of a little bit of, uh, masturbatory egoism on my own part because I don't know, like I said before, it's, it's fun to hear conversations that I preempted by weeks by very intelligent people. And I get that if they're talking on a public forum, they're, the chances of them going into the supposition zone it's probably fairly low but in that sense it's like wow I can't believe that you know I'm saying the same thing that people said make me happy because I don't know like I said 
trying to remove the bluster from that statement is kind of interesting. Uh, read this thing, this novel called O Pioneers, it was written in 1913 by a woman named Willa Cather. It was a really great book. Um, doing a project on it in uh, my English class. Kind of reiterates my how much I love writing and reading. Um, I mean, I, I go on at length about a variety of things, which is totally enjoyable to me. It's not even work. It's like how if I could read interesting books and talk about them, it would. <laughs> it's uh, I could do that all diggity day. Um, which makes me think of where I might want to go in later in my collegiate career. Because, man, it's that's something I enjoy. And there, I, there's a part of me that, you know, as I've talked about before, that's untrustworthy of fiction, but I'm beginning to feel less and less that way. Um, just... The, the the amount of people who actually want to deal with things in explicit terms is low. Um, the amount of people who might enjoy a media and gain something from it that they might not otherwise have gained is higher, in my opinion. So It's a shame because it's like putting a stumbling block in the communication. It doesn't necessarily have to be there, but then again, it doesn't necessarily have to not be there. It's just that it seems life is too short. Um, you know, I think we only have two, two modes of thinking in this life where we don't think about mortality and we go on like life ends, lasts forever or we think about it and life becomes... Um, to a sad degree, uh, finite and, uh, and you want to prioritize things, you know, you don't want to waste your time with things that you don't think are important. And to some degree, I'm, uh, I guess you could say, uh, utilitarian enough to believe that things should have some sort of output as the ultimate goal. And I, I try to think, think of things in terms relative to that, to a large degree. And uh, this being said, I think that, you know, we, we all have to live in a certain mode and there are certain actions that must take place that aren't um, for utilization's sake. This goes into part of my last podcast that I didn't release that I expound on my own um, level of being on the spectrum, uh, which probably is a good reason why I might have deleted it, but I believe I have some symptoms of Asperger's, um, and uh, I don't know. It is what it is, but it depends on whether you use that as a rationale to disprove what I'm saying 
or you use that to frame what I'm saying in a, in a certain degree. And you know, if I would listen, if I found out that certain people might have a a disability like that, I really don't know how I would would take it, especially before I may have attributed any percentage of that to myself. I mean, one thing like uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, a surprise to hear that she's admittedly has Asperger's, which um, doesn't change at all the message that she was saying to me. Um, but it's still interesting that you, it has to be viewed through that lens to some degree. And, you know, oh, there's always these allusions to spectrumy people that are just generally I mean the the main component of it is being socially awkward in some degree and I've admittedly so to in my own in my own particulars I definitely have had social awkwardness um but I don't know I don't I don't feel it that way necessarily I mean it's like I said about the two versions of truth the introspective truth, I guess you call it, and the extrospective. Or, I don't know, there might be a better t set of terms for that, but the from without cultural percentage, um, democratic way of thinking of truth, and then the uh, internally salient um, if the social doesn't matter to you, then it's as much, then you discount the the extrinsic, extemper, ex well, not, what was the word? <laughs> Extrospective um, viewpoint. Which uh, can be de debilitating or not. I mean, I think that's partially what allows them to, um, and you know, you got to think, well, allows them to find niches within the evolutionary landscape. And you got to think in terms of uh, that for some reason that these disabilities haven't been ev evolved out. I mean, maybe they're a newer thing, but. Uh, and they don't necessarily, like, you know, we're not strict geneticists um, as far as, like, a Gattaca-type situation where we're selecting for previous traits, you know, based on their ultimate utility. And so it's hard to say whether these should have been bred out of the genome or not. But it does say something that they are still with us, that they must have some at least tertiary utility that allows them to allows them to be replicated and it's kind of an interesting way to view that because you know let's say that there's a person who is extremely disabled socially but they have enough money that they can't be ignored is a powerful oh crap oh sorry about that I was waiting for a package that 
I didn't know if whether it was going to show up or not, and then it did. And yeah, I didn't. So I had to take a little break, and now I don't even know what I was talking about. I know it was something to do with being spectrumy. <laughs> about the evolutionary advantage or disadvantage of that. And whether, I don't know, like I said, whether we can even see the how the evolutionary evolution of humans now is, is a straight line leading directly towards reproductive success. Which I don't think it is. I think it's far too diffuse to... And I think that the appeal to, like, money is an interesting way to view that, that viewpoint. That, yeah, like, you say that, you know, people are materialistic in a sense, that they'll do things in, in a sexual way for money, and I guess that's a way it, it subverts it and kind of realigns it with being ultimate utility, being instantiated in reproductive success. But like I said, I don't think that, I think it's too, too diffuse. I think we're in all new territory that isn't really seen under the rubric of what we would call natural selection. And like I said before, I think it's far more likely it's an artificial selection, but even further than that, because like I said, there is an Agatica style uh, eugenics program in place to breed out unwanted DNA and whatnot, it's uh, it's far more diffuse, and people have autonomy and free, you know, not freedom to choose in the broadest sense, but in the sense that uh, we allow them to have their own, to dictate their own genetic destiny, whether that seems plausible or not. I mean, ultimately, it's, and determinism would say it's going to go back into some sort of form of utility at the end of the day, but it doesn't mean that aberrations happen because that's part of evolution. Evolution is um, aberrant forms that appear, and if they at all um, add to the survival fitness of a creature, then they'll be expressed over thousands of generations. Um, and that, you know, that can be a 0.01% better chance, but depending on, it's the time frame that we're talking about and iterations and the generative factor that has more to do with that and over time. That's why it takes such a long time to make changes. That being said, I'm kind of looking at uh, the future of mind-computer interfaces and how that will affect our outcomes. Um, AI, in the sense, because it it can be argued that now that we have phones, it's like having a mechanical component to our beings that is almost inextricable. I mean, anyone, I mean, this, I can't imagine what the percentage of people who use phones now are, but it's got to be really, really high. Um, 
but that's the dependence is going to increase and what I think is going to be the most salient change is the arbitration of our own choices. I mean, what the AI and what greater compliance or greater cohesion with mechanical structures is going to enable us to do is to look into and count and counts automated processes more important than individual choice and this has to go a lot with the idea of mortality that our life is finite and that in our lives we want to be as efficient uh, socially and intellectually as humanly possible and so we're going to effectivate, we're going to be effectively automated in a lot of degrees, and that's what the AI components of our lives are going to allow us to do, is to automate certain functions, automate, you know, there, you know, there'll be studies in the future, like, this percentage of your time is, is better, you know, if you devote 20% of your day to socializing, then you'll have better health outcomes, etc., and then, there'll be something that automates all of that the percentage wise into a program that is basically like a scheduler that schedules events for you. And just saying that, I mean, there's a part of me that gets kind of giddy at the, at that aspect of taking choice out of it in, you know, the exact opposite of the introspective, extrospective, um, truth seeing, um, and that we will completely ally, our, ally ourselves with extrospective. I mean, that's something that science has, has more and more as it goes along and progresses is teaching us is that um, we have to, in order to do the work that's needed to prove things in the world, it takes many people over a, a, a span of time in order to do the experiments necessary in order to come to conclusions of that sort. And the more that we uh, apply that to all facts of our life, the more that it's going to become automated. I mean, there's no question as to the efficacy of regular exercise. Um, and it's just, you know, or for, for example, the negative impacts of smoking cigarettes. Like, there's no question about it, like, and the more, the less that you have autonomy in these things, the better for you, ultimately, and uh, they're going to, you know, I think a part of the future is going to be assigning weights to all these effective treatments, and uh, allowing, because allowing for the greatest possible health in the greatest span of time. And I think that's just natural. I mean, especially now that I've been dealing with certain health problems, I can see that it's merely an illusion to yourself to believe that you're not going to be affected. Or it's, you know, it's fine up until you are. And then it becomes ever so salient when it actually affects you. Um... And I think that as you grow older, you know, it's just a matter of time before you get to this point. Um, 
And so there's going to be things like that. And, you know, all of our behaviors are going to be uh, categorized and turned into rigorous um, automation. And uh, I, I don't think that we'll be able to do that overnight. It's this, you know, we're, we're so beholden to the idea that free will is intrinsic and so important. We're so beholden to the idea of an old world mentality that we have this kind of tabula rasa of the world in, in front of us and that we can, you know, etch our own pattern in the nature of, and uh, that I think that it's going to take a while before we truly dispose of that, but it's like we know at this point what it takes to become, you know, an expert in something. We know at this point what it takes to get to the point where you're very good at, at some manual task. We know it takes repetition. We know it takes time. We know it takes familiarity. Um, but there's going to be a continual emphasis on how to remove all the fat from that process um, and make it as efficient as possible. And really, we want to breach the gap between um, it's like the two sides of of economics you have goods and you have services and what we want to do as humans is lessen the service side to the minim most minimal degree I mean it could be said that this is you know it's very important for people of high status and who are have a lot of material wealth to lessen the impact and i think that more and more you know it's like we appreciate expertise in the world and we still very much um value it we give it value but more and more we have people in positions that don't necessarily have some value can point to where they're experts, but they still need to justify their material wealth um, to some degree, and they don't need to, but within themselves, you can see that there's an, a, nest, a need to, um, you know, that's what, where we have eccentricities within uh, affluent people, is they, they need some way to differentiate themselves from the average Joe in a matter that they, this is why they are deserved of this level of affluence, even though they don't have some expertise that they can point to, you know, like, it's easy enough if you're, uh, you know, Rafael Nadal, and you're an expert at tennis, and you know that you can play that game, and it's hands down, unquestionably, whether it's completely on you as a person, you're the only person engaged in the activity, and and there's a system in place that determines hierarchy, and that hierarchy is the sport itself. And the sport itself was made to lessen uh, subjective emphasis. It's it it's like uh, a scientific process for determining athletic skill, and especially in tennis because you're just one person. And it's not like golf, where you're just one person, but it's a skill, which is, is still, you know, it's not subjective whether you, you can be, have the, 
the whole in four strokes or three. But it, it is subjective in that um well, okay. <laughs> it's not it's not too terribly subjective, but it's I, I think it's less subjective when you have you know, you can't cross the court as fast as this person. Uh, and you're not as accurate as this person. Like, there are a defined set of skills that allow you to be proficient. And really it's about um, honing in on, on expertise and obsessing about it as early as humanly possible, as far as I've seen. Um, and that, you know, that's part of a distinguishing part, too, because the people who are able to devote their lives to that have to be affluent because um, they have to be able to provide without question for that person or for themselves and not be worried about spending time doing extraneous activities because that's where you start getting into problems is when your path of expertise is diverted. Anyway, this is a, in a long-form way of saying that I feel that society itself has, is built on discounting service. Um, that's partially what phones do, and that's what, to a greater extent, artificial intelligence is going to do for us. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a symbiote with us, and, uh, you know, I think that there probably won't be any AI that isn't... Well, that's not true, but... There's going to be a personal AI that we all have, just like we have a personal phone. And eventually, it's going to be indistinguishable from us. It's going to be our virtual signature, like an avatar. It's going to be our AI, which uh, is depending on how it's automated and the choices we make in automation. And uh, that's where the choice point is still going to be salient for people, but it's still... You know, like if, if you're running the rich person program where let's say that you don't need, that you have no need to try to build wealth, you, your wealth is taken care of, you're, you're perfectly fine um, living in the, the best way possible and allowing for no qualms to enter into your providing the longest and best lived life possible. That system, that automation is going to be very similar to other peoples of the same automation. And so what you're, you're getting there is, is instead of running that same program, there's going to be flavors of, of you know, personal reflection. There's going to be your own little niche that you develop. And, you know, that, that it won't affect the automation to some degree, but it'll affect how you choose to distribute time. But this is the problem I have with where that will ultimately go and really what the ultimate conclusion of uh, universal basic income to me is that we all assume that if, if all the basic needs of people were met and that we can kind of just pool our creativity that that's the way that we can, you know, much like medieval Italy, that's the way we can effective, be an effective hierarchy is, is based on relative competence and, you know, 
wh whether that's you know in things that are more or less subjective uh, as we go along and the less subjective they are the harder it is going to be but the less there's going to be uh, fuckery in the system in that there's not going to be someone who's rich who can just put their name out there and then oh now you associate artists with you know a certain person's name and so if they have that name that there's automatically an association built in and they don't need to work as hard to be a great artist especially when it's you know good art can be entirely subjective I mean if it was just if art was if if painting or drawing was the point was to get it as most photorealistic as possible then you know printers would be better than any artists and artists would be you know out of the system at that point but that's where that's the point of art in itself is that it is subjective but then there's art forms like sports and to say sports and art form is kind of an anachronism uh, but in a way it is it's just a far less subjective form of art like you're you know you're not dealing with you're not dealing with uh oh can you convince this many people that what you're doing is good it's more of can the people who are already engaged in pursuing the subjective process realize your excellence in it and like I said, even then, there's, there's a subjective realm. There's levels. Like, you know, there's not... Like, there, in most sports, there's not just a, a one-down ranking. I mean, it's hard. That, that's why in tennis there is. is because it's, you know, it's a lot easier when it's individual. But when, when there's m multiple people working together to achieve a goal, and you can't assign, you know, responsibility evenly, then there's an intrinsic subjective element that will always be there. And so I think it's going to get interesting. We'll see what happens, you know, whether it's going to be this weird um, sentiment-based, you know, and I think that the subjective is going to increase many times. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we can see that in our modern age, you know, there, there isn't those, those names that stick out to you like a Rembrandt or, you know, a Tchaikovsky, you know, or a Michael Jordan even. There's a field of expertise that are, is subjective and it's becoming more and more diffuse so that the objective measures of these things aren't as clearly defined. Um, and I think that's because with science and technology, we've become obsessed with objectivity, um, which is more to the Ian McGillcrest point of a left hemisphere oriented society that's becoming more and more that way. And, uh, but in that sense, what we can attribute to human beings like there, there's this, there's this necessary distance we have to keep between society and objectivity, because we can never accept society to be objective. Because the thing is that the people who are going to be objectively worse are 
still going to pine after the things that are beholden to the objectively better people. And so inevitably, and that this goes into the the primate, the primatologist example of having a tyrant is good up until, you know, the B and C strongest ape in the tribe want to take him down. And then being a tyrant is also being a target. And so in that sense, there's, there's the continual, you know, there's a need from the top to make it diffuse in order so that they don't become a target of the greater section of the people below them. And there's also the fact that, so there's sacrifices need to be made in, in a sense, is that sometimes the higher allocated uh, resources that are given to the objective winners are allowed to be, trickle down in order to appease the masses and, and to lead to peace. I mean, there's this uneasy balance that must be created. Or else people, you know, sometimes if it's bad enough, they'll do anything to get out of their objectively menial situation. And you can see why that exists when you look at the lower strata of social economic progression. Like when it was actually related to whether you would get more food or less, like it was highly important to keep that field diffuse so that you got your fair share regardless, even if you, you know, were the lowest rung on the totem pole, like you still can't allow that to let you starve. And the higher ups can't allow you to starve and then revolt and cause problems because violence is like the ultimate, um, the ultimate equalizer. And uh, that's why it's still, even to this day, is still related to by people is saying that this is the last line that mu that will be crossed like we all have that point that we that we believe ourselves that we you know if you're backed into a corner then you fight the harder because um it's sometimes that's the, when you when all the variables narrow and that's the only way to get out of the corner then it it becomes more of a question of cowardice than it does about um, honor or respect. Like, and that's the, that's the thin line that we all have to balance ourselves on. So I think it's going to get interesting. Um, I, you know, it bothers me that it's not explicit, but I just don't think that's how things are done. Um, you know, like... That's a reason why things aren't as explicit in in that domain is that we need to keep things necessarily unobjective in a societal sense or we cause internal problems when we assume that people are created equal. Like it, otherwise, if we don't have those things happening simultaneously, then it becomes a dictatorship. It becomes an authoritarian state. It becomes a meted out caste system that necessarily makes a certain case a certain percentage of people unequal and will eventually lead to some sort of revolt where they decide that their lives aren't 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 more important enough to 
to kowtow to those ideals. And this is the, the continual, and you know, this is the continual situation that we're looking at as far as technology goes, is because if we get into a scenario, and I think this is the American freedom argument in its, in its full-fledged nature, is that we, if we get into a scenario like that, um, there needs to be a recourse to freedom. There needs to be a recourse to bucking the system because it can't stultify. And the, the more that technology increases, the more available, availability we have to stultifying the system. Because all it takes is for the upper classes to have ubiquitous control of the lower classes in order for that system not to work anymore. Once there's no longer recourse to violence, which is certainly a situation that if we're not in, um, that we're approaching, then the, any recourse to not being in an authoritarian state is, is gone. And I think that's why the Second Amendment in itself is very, very important. And uh, it's not just a question of whether guns are available, it's whether we, we can form a militia to overthrow the powers to be if they get into a, a situation where the, their, their authority is so overwhelming that even a billion people cannot overthrow a tiny majority because the advantage economically is so great. And I think that we're rapidly approaching that situation. I mean, I think we're, all, we're already in it. And what we're seeing here and what the conspiracy theorists are alluding to is the fear of that becoming the case, that there's the Illuminati, there's this small, tiny group of people that now have ubiquitous control over the rest of us, and that they have some resource that they're not allocating to us, which is a fear, and especially when you're in a situation like the COVID-19 situation, that if the, one, if the 0.01% have a vaccine that works 100% of the time, then you know, it's game over. Like, if it's viral warfare, like, this could be the end if it's not, if it's not what, truly what the, the mainstream media tells us it is. If it is controlled by some biological agent that the 1% have control, then, and this is a test run to see how, how it would be implemented to kind of allow us to get used to the idea without completely throwing the switch, it could get dangerous. It could get very dangerous. And this is where I have some sympathy for those people who want to fight against it. Um, because if, if, you know, if there was some overarching conspiracy um, and if they had, like, ultimate control, like, if we didn't assume that the people who are reporting the news to us have some you know, honor, you know, like, in actually telling the truth, in saying that, you know, for them, it's just a, a, a top-down messaging platform where they're a speaking head and the people in the top, and it would have to go stri strictly pyramidal where there's, there's the least amount of people in the know that are uh, flipping the switches. Like, it gets nasty. And the thing, the thing is, it's not even, like... 
to think about, oh, if, if we Americans took our pistols and shotguns and decided that we wanted to go take down tanks and fucking fighter jets, it's like <clears throat> the only thing that's saving us from that is the idea that even then those people are more us than they are them. And, uh, but once it gets, you know, it's ironic because we're looking back at um, the elitizing of the soldiery, like the Knights of the Round, who only the rich could afford the technology of armor and weapons in the day to allow them to be effective combatants. And if we, if we look at it like the flip side, that now the 1% are directly related in parsing out part of their vast wealth in order to create completely subjugated soldier classes, then we'd have a big problem on our hands. Or the flip side to that is when the soldiery becomes entirely automated and that it's no longer a question of loyalty, it's a question of economic wealth. And if you can pay a billion dollars to create 10,000 perfect drone soldiers, uh, then you don't no longer need people's consideration. So I think we're on the cusp of it. We're, we're getting closer and closer to a world where it's going to be impossible for the lower castes to even threaten the upper caste. And then there's going to be, you know, all we have to rely on then is people's good nature. And uh, we can all see what happens when uh, we go up scales of resolution um, and instead of looking at a person to person, like I'm walking down the street and there's another person walking down the street and God, would it be terrible if he just attacked me or we got into a fight or pulled out a gun, you know, like uh, immediately you would accuse that guy of being a piece of shit. Uh, but once you go up scales of resolution to, you know, cities by cities and then countries by countries, now it's completely diffuse and it's inarticulate. Then, then it becomes a big problem. And there's, you know, we have to be cognizant of that. We have to be aware that that's a possibility. And I've, I, to be honest, like, I, you know, I'm coming up with this as I go. This is pretty profound to me. I hadn't even thought of it in these terms. So saying that and realizing it and thinking about the logic of it um, is startling to me. And it's startling in the sense that it hasn't, I've never heard that argument before. I've never heard that sign of logic. Uh, we need to make this more explicit. We need to make it explicitly known to people. And we need to know, you know, I need to know what the problem with that chain of logic is. Like, if there's a loose link, then I need to know and so that you don't make these grand conclusions. But I, you know, a lot of it, can only be inferred subjectively through, you know, your subjective grasp of how people react to power structures and your subjective grasp of how certain information is to be interpreted. Because um, those things get rather diffuse. Hmm. That's interesting. Well... I'm going to check what I have on my podcast ideas. Oh, sorry. I was...
That was my mom, everyone, by the way. She's now part of the podcast, apparently. I'm going to go eat a couple eggs. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see what I got. Maybe I should just stop here. <laughs> I, don't, I can't imagine closing it any more apoplectic than that. Yeah, so um, I'm going to focus my energies more on writing at this point. Um, you know, just doing this 45 minutes here has made me think a lot about, you know, sometimes you can only come to ideas through this meandering process of talking through it. And there's something about doing this that allows me to meander through these ideas. And never have I thought of a rational interpretation of the Second Amendment like I just laid out. Um, you know, and I, I have this reflex just because I, I view myself as a left-leaning person to, you know, exonerate that logic, to work through it, and to ch disprove it to some degree, which I will to some degree. We'll see how it works. But... You know, and I want to give out statements like I'm going to give about that doesn't mean that, you know, guns are good. Uh, you know, I've, I've never owned or had the, the need to own a gun in my entire life. And uh, I attribute this mostly, you know, my thought is, is that if you don't piss people off enough to want to kill you, you don't have to worry about them wanting to shoot you. And so if I don't go around stealing people or doing things that they might disapprove of or stealing things from people, <laughs> stealing people, that would get you shot for sure too. But what I meant was like, taking things from people from power disputes. Like a part of me, you know, I, I think that survival has to be real rectified in that sense. Like if you're having power struggles with people, there's a, there's a portion of it that has to be seen through the lens of what may happen when this, if this person was irrational um, because people become irrational it's just a fact of life and uh, that's my thought of what I call the way of the deer and you know people want to think that they, everyone has this blustery idea of violence that they want to meet violence with violence and that they're you know have some, some recourse to violence and thanks and the, the, you know this is why guns and weapons exist in the first place is because if if they didn't then it would just be everyone works out like crazy and then we have this hierarchy of people who are meatheads and you know this to some degree still exists this is what we see in you know the ufc and this is why those things are in, interesting is we want to have a hierarchy of physical unarmed combat but the thing is, is that arms exist, and so then it becomes a, a a question of economics and access as opposed to let's go lift these weights and, and train, you know, which, thank God we can sublimate that to some degree because, man, training is takes a lot of work. Um, but in the same sense, you know, it's these power dynamics that, ultimately to me it seemed petty like to some people it seems intrinsic like they couldn't do without it but to me it seems like if if you're not willing to dispense with that then you deserve what you get you know and sometimes what you get is crazy people who want to harm you 
to the point of killing you with a gun. And so a part of it, you know, that's the way of the deer is you can't attribute survival with this honor culture. Like it's not cowardice to run away and not just physically run away, but socially run away. And, you know, maybe that's been part of my problem in the long run is that I, I haven't been able to be a combative person in any sense. And I've haven't taken even acceptable risks because, you know, I don't want to cross paths with someone who might want to do me harm. And guess what? I'm still alive. <laughs> and I have no one who, who would want to do harm to me. Um, so that I, I have no fear of someone who is dreaming about the day that they can come and shoot me or take my life. And I'm okay with that, you know, to some degree, I'm, uh, you know, that's a choice that we all make and I'm willing to make that choice. And in that sense, you know, I'm a pacifist. It's like, and I hate when people chuckle at that sentiment. It's like, yeah, because you're the, the problem, you jerk. And, you know, because I, I'm not going to stop you through force that somehow that um, emboldens you in your, your perspective, but that's just power, man. That's just power. It's just your, your insecure power striving. And, uh, to me, as long as I can feed myself and be re relatively entertained, uh, that's good enough for me. You know, I may not have the best things. I may not have the, the biggest groups of friends. I may not have, you know, women who are pining after me but i do have security in my pacifism in that i've never done harm to someone in a power dispute um and i've never had to do harm to someone in defense because uh i've never done anything that would warrant defending and uh it's hard for me not to see that as a voluntary choice by anyone because I've, I've made that choice and so far it's worked out. And there, there have been times that it's gotten close um, and that I had to fall back on the threat of violence in order to get my point across because to some degree people just don't seem to take you seriously unless that happens, which is a sad fact of life. And... Uh, there's times in my life where I I wanted to be heard with such a with with such a such power that I felt that it was necessary to to threaten a, a show of force, never use one. And even then, I feel you know. <clears throat> and this is the exact opposite opposite sentiment that I get into when I'm talking about. Um, wanting to act out when I'm in my troughs that I want to, you know, tap into that because the fact of the matter is I, I believe I could. I mean, I may be wrong, but um, I just don't want to. It's counterintuitive to who I am as a person.
Um, you know, I've, I've done martial arts before. I know what it is to struggle. I know what it is to fight someone. Um, and it's exhaustingly stupid. And I'm really tired of people who just continually buy into that rhetoric or just are the passive ones who, who, you know, believe in it, but yet it's only because they've never had to actually face it before that they, uh, they can live with themselves with that sort of rhetoric. And, you know, those are the type of people who sleep with a, a pistol under their pillow just in case. And those people are just as bad as the bullies who go around slugging people as a show of force so that they, you know, avoid getting slugged again. Like, to me, they're, they're the same people. And that's why it's, it's kind of, it feels very hypocritical in my mind. Anyway, that was kind of a tangent, but uh, <laughs> once again, some, the, you know, my point being made right there, I, I didn't have those thoughts before. Like, these are things that I'm working through, these ideas that I want to speak out loud because then I can make sense of them in those terms and build off of them one way or the other. Um, and I think that's important. Um, the same thing happens when I write. Um, and that's a lot, a lot of times why my writing, if you've heard some of it, if you've listened to the Apothegems of Anachronism episodes, um, tends to be rather diffuse. I, I'm not a huge fan of editing. I like to write because it allows me to go on rolls in the same way that I do when I'm speaking into this mic. So this is why I'm going to continue making podcasts. Uh, regardless of listenership, regardless of, um, you know, whether I think that I'm saying anything that's worth being heard. But in a sense that it allows me to work through my ideas. And I hope, you know, maybe one day that there will be people there who can help me work through these ideas together and that we can work through them together and that it can come to some sort of consensus. Um... And I don't, you know, to some degree, I don't think anyone can be budged outside of their individual paradigm. Um, and so the consensus is really the building of an echo chamber to some degree. But this is why I, I, I you know, I want to encourage discursive ideas, ideas that go against the grain, even if they sound radical and ridiculous at the time. Like the, the 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 point being by determinism is that they're rooted in something real, even if they're ridiculous. And I hope that you feel the same way if you hear what I say, and you think what I'm saying is ridiculous. That there's no words spoken in a vacuum. There's there's no thought that we have that isn't expressed in some way, whether it be diverted or corrupted in certain ways. It has to have a root in reality within our minds. And uh, this is why I think coming together and, and having intercourse of ideas is important. And uh, this is why it's important to me to divulge my own personal agenda and my own personal ideas. Because even though it may be counterintuitive to my own progress 
like maybe someone could better know their own perspective by comparing it and contrasting it to my own. And so in a sense, I don't, you know, I don't want there to be a thousand people out there who just agree with me. I want people to see some value in, in my ideas, whether they're constructive to their own or destructive. And I think both of those things are of value. And so it's out there and that's the point. But that being said, I want to, I'm probably going to do less frequently, maybe once a week and I'll figure out a day that I can release it every week. And that way it'll be, um, predictable. Um, like most podcasts are designed to be predictable, regular, um, and, and like I said, I wanted to edit it more because, you know, then I don't have to hear my mom tell me that she made me eggs in the middle of my podcast or, or you know, maybe I can put splice some music or other elements and, you know, and we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Maybe it could be interesting and more enjoyable to listen to. And, you know, there's a whole other part of that that involves getting the word out there that I've been horribly negligent on. Um, because I, you know, I viewed that, Oh, if I make a couple of posts on Reddit, if I make a couple of uh, comments within my own personal Instagram feeds that people would respond. Um, and you know, some people have, um, but there, I need to be more consistent in that and more consistent in the message and what I'm trying to provide to people. So, that when, you know, because they're, they're doing the thing of automation too and trying to find the most effective means. And when it's an un, unheralded, unverified source, then you really have to take a leap of faith. And the ironic thing is most people who do that are like me and they want other people to listen to their unheralded, unverified opinions. And so it gets into this problem. But I think that if, you know, if you have it out there, you try to um, singularize your ideals and make it clear, then it's easier for people to pick up on it. But in that sense, I also want to increase my, my writing. and uh, Writing in the sense that I don't mind other people actually reading what I write, and, which is against what I did with Apothegems of Anachronism. I mean, it eventually stiltified and stopped because... I, I wanted to just, like, put a lead out there and have people follow it, um, as opposed to saying that this is something I actually am behind and allow it to be distributed and be read by people who may not agree with it, you know? And uh, I, the thing is, I, I want them to not agree with it based on its content, not on my writing ability. And so that was the point, is that I was trying to get to the point where I was comfortable enough with my ability to write um, effectively to um, be effective to people. But I, at this point, I think that I can do that. I can speak that way. And uh, if people don't like it, then they can tell me why. And that's, that's going to be more interesting, you know, regardless of whether it's in support or in destruction of. So anyway, that was episode 12 of Quintessence of Dust. Um, a lot to be said in the title there. It was kind of a poor choice. And if you don't know, it's a line 
from Hamlet, um, which I keyed into after my own father's death. Um, and yeah, that's that. So I will talk to you probably next week.